1 and the 10th chapter of Joshua and the 15th verse. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. And the next scripture is the 6th chapter of Galatians. That's in the New Testament. And the 14th verse. Galatians 6.14. I could quote it, but I might make a mistake. So I'm going to turn to it. Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank thee that we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' victory, his work is complete, crushing all enemies under his feet. Jesus' victory, the foe from the dust, never can rise again if we but trust him. We thank thee, Lord, that thou art our victor. We pray, O God, that thou will bless the truth of thy word to every one of our hearts, and may we be permanently edified thereby. Help our every infirmity. In Jesus' name, amen. When Vasco da Gama was on his early exploration tours around the world, I think the first one, he took some Catholic missionaries with him to the southwest coast of China, and they naturally established Catholic missions. And they eventually built a great big stone church out there, and they embedded in the front wall of the church a big stone cross. Many, 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 many years passed by, and a tornado swept through the country, leveled the church, tore up the whole countryside, wreckage was on every side, and an English bishop, either John or William Bowering, I believe his name was John Bowering, was on a tour. He came to that place in southwest China, in the vicinity of Canton, and he stood and he looked at the wreckage all around him, but this old stone Catholic church was the front wall of the thing was still standing. And he looked up and saw that old stone cross still embedded in the masonry, the stone wall of that church. That's the only part of the church that was still standing. The cross was still there. And so he felt inspired to write that wonderful old church song. We never sing it in Pentecost because we have come into a new wonderful life in the Holy Ghost, and it is so far superior to the old life that we used to endure in, the, in our early church experience before we came into vital touch with Christ in our churches, and these songs, these old stately songs of the church were sung back there, therefore we associate those old songs with deadness and, and with, uh, you know, just not worth anything. But there's tremendous value in those old songs. And those old writers that wrote those songs wrote most of them, most of them under the mighty inspiration of the Holy Ghost himself. And so Bishop Bowring wrote, In the cross of Christ thy glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, 
All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. That's more than poetry. That's sound theology. All that God ever did for us, does for us now, or ever will do for us, and all the light of divine revelation emanates to us through VIA, the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory. I've seen more visions than all of you put together. I've seen more, I've had more revelations than all the rest of them. I've talked in tongues more than all of you. I, I'm God's chief apostle to the Gentiles. He made his boast in self-defense and in defense of the gospel, not in vain glory. And then he said, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ by which I am crucified unto the world and the world is crucified unto me. Hallelujah. When the woes of life o'ertake me, friends deceive or fears annoy, foes annoy, never will the cross forsake me, lo, it glows with peace and joy. Bane or blessing, pain or pleasure, by the cross are sanctified. Peace is there that knows no measure, joys that through all time abide. I want to talk to you this morning about the cross. Well, what's that got to do with Joshua? Well, Joshua, way back there in the in the tenth chapter of Joshua, uh, he was he was he was leading a he was uh, leading the conquest. He was leading the Israelites in the conquest of the land of Canaan. Remember, wasn't that pardon, Brother Sloan? Will pardon me for remarking about his message last night. But wasn't that a tremendous sermon last night? Oh, I thank God that preachers in this convocation are not in a preaching contest, or I'd quit before I even tried to start. But, oh, brother, what tremendous truth. Praise the name of the Lord for I mean that with all my heart. As for me, I'm going to get every one of these tapes Whoever's in charge of the tape department, I'm ordering all the tapes of the convocation, including my own. <laughs> I want to see how awful I sound, see if I can, can't correct some of my grammar. Praise the name of the Lord. Put that order down, whoever you are, put that order down. I want those tapes as soon as you can get them this afternoon, if possible. <laughs> Praise the Lord. When Joshua... When, when, when Joshua led the Israelites across the River Jordan. They had the conquest. They camped in a place called Gilgal. G-I-L-G-A-L. Gilgal. It means a rolling thing. You ever see a plains tumbleweed? Literally, that's a Gilgal. That rolling thing. It means that tumbleweed rolling and when they reached Gilgal before they could sling the first stone or shoot the first arrow against the enemy in the land of Canaan to take possession of the land that God gave them by covenant promise before they could attempt any attack on the country God said wait a minute get circumcised Get circumcised, yeah, because God didn't want any grandsons. The Israelites that came up out of Egypt were circumcised, and circumcision was the mark, the insignia, 
standing for crucifixion, death to the natural energy of the flesh. That's what circumcision in the flesh stands for. And the Israelites, by the million that were born in the wilderness, had not been circumcised by reason of the journey. And they could not get out of the land of Egypt, they could not go through the wilderness until they were circumcised. Understand? But then all those thousands and hundreds of thousands that were born in the wilderness, none of them were circumcised. They didn't keep the ordinance of circumcision in the wilderness. And that was a reproach because the un their uncircumcised condition identified them in perfect unity with the Egyptians from whence they had come out. And before they could really go into the land of Canaan and possess their possessions in Canaan, they had to get circumcised because the same death and resurrection that brought them out of Egypt had to be, that sign of that death and resurrection had to be made in the new generation. The old generation all died in the wilderness. You know that. The whole shooting match, all except Joshua and Caleb. All the rest of them died in the wilderness because of unbelief. But all the new generation, before they could go in and possess one square foot of territory in the land of Canaan, they had to get circumcised and the, the insignia or the mark of death or crucifixion had to be wrought in their physical bodies because the same death and resurrection of Christ that brings, the, brings you out of Egypt is the same death and resurrection that brings us into full possession of all our possessions that are promised to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so they were circumcised. Jordan means death. Means ye are dead. When you cross Jordan, you're dead. And circumcision means active. Oh, we're dead, we're crucified of Christ. Well, then circumcision means act. Well, what do you mean? Well, we don't believe in circumcision. Well, you better had believe in it. Oh, no, 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 no. Not the physical operation in the flesh. But Philippians 3.3 3 says, We are the true circumcision. Never submitted to a physical operation, but we are the true circumcision who what? What? That Old Testament circumcision stands for and represents our new life in Christ today that we live out, which is a crucified life. It's the, it's the, ex, it's the example, it's, it's Galatians 2.20 exemplified. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the labor which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so circumcision means if, if you've crossed the Jordan and you're dead with Christ, then act dead. And so they were circumcised at Gilgal and the reproach of Egypt was rolled away. That reproach meant that their uncircumcision identified them with the ungodly that were not in covenant relationship with God and it, and it rolled away the reproach that the Egyptians says, yang, yang, yang. God was able to take them out of Egypt and split the, split the Red Sea, but he had to starve them all to death in the wilderness because he wasn't, he wasn't able to take them into the land of Canaan. And God himself could not take them into the land of Canaan unless they were in covenant relationship with him, 
covenant relationship with him with all the accoutrements which included physical circumcision. Now all of that circumcision back there represents our stand in Jesus Christ today which Paul describes as we are the true circumcision who do, through th who do three things. Rejoice in Jesus Christ, worship God in the Spirit, and have no confidence in the flesh. And if you do those three things, you're not a grandson or a stepchild of God, but you're a really, truly born-again, dead, crucified saint of the living God, and you, have, you are a living heir to all that Jesus purchased for us on Calvary. Oh, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! I think I said that pretty neat, and I'm not, I'm not going to refer, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to repeat it. I got a bad habit of, of being so anxious to get my little points across that I have to repeat them about six times, and I've decided that you're, that you're people of, of uh, very superior intelligence in the things of God, and so uh, I, I'm not going to try to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Enough said. All right, that's what circumcision mounts to. And then God said, before you go over and knock the walls of Jericho down, you, you uh, change your diet. Change your diet. Yeah, they, they, they'd been eating manna. When Moses was sent to lead Israel out into Canaan's rich fruit-bearing land, they rebelled against the Spirit and worshipped a calf and refused to obey God's command. God did not compel them to go to that land which with wine, milk, and honey did flow, but he fed them on manna for forty long years till he just made them willing to go. And they crossed over the river Jordan and they said, Moses, the manna's not here anymore. And Moses said, no, there's a lot of corn in that, in that corn crib over there. Get yourself an ear of corn. And God changed their diet from manna to the old corn of the land. And I haven't time to go into typology right now, but the old corn of the land represents Christ, dead, risen, ascended, glorified at God's right hand. That's what the old corn of the land, having reached the full state of complete maturity. Jesus was born as a baby in the manger, the Son of God. And he grew in stature and with favor of the God and man, for God was with him, and though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and God raised him from the dead, took him to his own right hand, and all power is given unto him in heaven and earth. He's glorified, and the old corn of the land is Christ glorified. Amen. And your diet has changed from just manna, that's another, I can't go into that now, but it's changed from, from the diet of manna to the diet of feeding on a glorified Christ. How do you do that? By the Holy Ghost. For it's only by the Holy Ghost that you're able to partake and assimilate and receive day by day in a daily ration. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily ear of corn. That is bread corn. You don't chew on an, on an ear of corn. Bread corn is bruised. The corn is bruised and turned into bread, but it all stands for the same thing. It stands for Christ matured and glorified, and you, you, you assimilate him and receive him only by the, by the Holy Ghost. I'll let it go there. I, I haven't planned to go to prove every, every word I say. It would take hours. Then what else did they do? Well, there's four lessons I preached on it. 
often enough. And then Joshua met the captain of the Lord's thirst, and the captain of the Lord's thirst told him how to, how to prosecute the siege of the land uh, of the city of Jericho. And when the captain of the Lord's host appeared, Joshua said, Are you on our side? Drew his sword, went up to him and said, Who are you? Are you on our side? Or are you one of the, these Jerichoites? And the captain of the Lord's host wasn't the least bit perturbed. He said, Nay, I'm not working unto you. And I'm not one of the enemy. You're the captain of God's earthly host, but I'm the captain of God's heavenly host. Hallelujah. Take your shoes off. Hallelujah. You're standing on holy ground. Hallelujah. And, and Joshua fell on his face and worshipped, for that was the Theophany Christophany. That was the manifestation of the angel of the covenant. Went into great painful discourse yesterday morning to describe all the conditions and provisions that God made for us. And then he had one promise, I'll send my, the angel of the covenant before you to fight your battles for you. And the angel of the covenant appeared to Joshua and told Joshua exactly what process to use and the strategy for the overcoming of the city of Jericho. And you know what they did that night? They went back and slept in their tents at Gilgal. They couldn't sleep in the rubble and rubbish of the ruined city of Jericho. They turned the thing upside down. It looked like a rubbish heap. They just went back to their wives and kids back in the tents down there in the plains of Gilgal. You that have made tours over there, one and two and three and four and five and six tours over there, you know where the plains of Gilgal are. You stand at, you stand at Jericho and you look eastward, you see the Jordan down there, and there's a big flat level land there, a couple miles wide, I just forget how big it is, but that's where the, that's where the camp of Israel was, that's Gilgal. That's where the reproach of Egypt was rolled away, and, uh, and uh, that's where they ate the old corn of the land, and that's where the captain of the Lord's host appeared. I, I, I don't want to dwell too long on that, but there were four preparation steps that they had to take before they could enter into the, to, to the, to the conquest of the land of Canaan. But now wait a minute. They stayed in Gilgal. Why did they stay in Gilgal? Because the tabernacle was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. The mercy seat was there. The Shekinah glory was on the mercy seat. That's why they hung around Gilgal. That was their headquarters. And the high priest was there. And every time they were to breathe or comb their hair, that's, that's a little extreme, that's a metaphor. Every time they turned around, they were to ask God, Lord, what do we do? And then the leader, Joshua, asked the high priest, and the high priest said, God, what do they do? And he stuck his hand in the, in the pocket of the breastplate and pulled out the Urim and the Thummim. Do you know what it is? No, you don't, neither do I. Great mystery of all Bible times, Bible history. Urim and Thummim, black and white, guilty or innocent. But by the Urim and Thummim, the will of God was made known. Here comes a bunch of beggars. Here comes a bunch of hippies. They got old, clotted, clouded shoes on, tied on with rope, and and their what did Brother Carroll say yesterday? They their head looked like a mop, and they smelt like an Arab with a billy goat under each arm. Talk about metaphors. Uh, don't put that on the tape. Delete that. Uh, 
And, and so uh, here comes a bunch of bums, I mean a bunch of hippies down there and says, here we got some moldy bread and, and, and we got an, all these goat skins that when we started out they were brand new because God said make no covenant, no dialogue, no agreements, no alliances with the ungodly hordes in the land of Canaan. Kill them! Drive them out. Don't have any mercy on them. They're such ungodly, absolute reprobates. God gave them 450 years to repent and the cup of iniquity got full and splashed over and God was using Israel as a sergeant's knife to cut the cancer of rotten social conditions out of the world for the sake of unborn posterity. Or don't have anything to do with them. Joshua, he was, he was loyal to it. We're not going to make any alliances with these ungodly tribes. But these, these smart uh, lion deceivers came in dressed like, oh, we've been on a journey. When we started out, these kids' skins were brand new, but look at them now. All the hair's falling out, and they got full of holes, and they're old and moldy, and, and Joshua bit on the bait. He didn't go near the high priest. He didn't go near the tabernacle. He didn't say, well, wait, uh, yeah, just you hold your horses a little while. We're going to ask God about this. He just presumed. Why, we, we know what we're doing. Why, we just knocked the walls of Jericho down. We did, we did. Why, we're invincible. God's on our side. What do you have to go hanging around the altar for? What he had to go praying for. What he had to seek the face of God for. God, God gave us his word. No foe will be able to stand against you. The angel of the Lord will go before you. And he just proved it. Jericho was our ripe plum that fell into our hands. And there, why, uh, we don't have to pray every time we comb our hair. We don't have to pray every, every move we make. And so he ignored his divine source of power and victory. And he said, well, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And these Gibeonites said, we come from way over yonder. Two looks a holler and a right smart git why we came from way over in the other territory, way over yonder. Well, we're not, we're not really close neighbors at all. And so Joshua signed a covenant with him. He said, well, sure, we'll make peace with you. That's not against the law. We'll make peace with you. We'll never kill any Gibeonite. Didn't call them Gibeonites then. They, they had some kind of presumed name. We're from way over on the coast of Portugal. Or we're from Sicily or someplace. We're from way over the other side of Lebanon, way over by Greece somewhere. And he signed a covenant with them. And then the Bible said, how many times did we know all the dishes will be here till one o'clock and I'm getting hungry. That they said, uh, the, the Bible says that Joshua and his, and his army, his crack troops, left Gilgal after they signed the covenant with the Gibeonites. They left Gilgal and they marched three days. And they came to Gibeon. And here were some of these fellows that, had made a, that they'd made a treaty with. 
And Joshua said, what are you doing here? They said, this is, this is where we live. And Joshua said, you lied to us. They said, yeah, we took you smart Jews in. Leave it to, leave it to these Canaanites to deceive the people of God when the people of God don't stay near the altar. When the people of God don't stay near the mercy seat. When the people of God don't keep hounding the high priest and I, maybe that's an unfortunate word when they don't keep humble at the feet of the high priest when they don't keep seeking the will of God when they don't keep back at Gilgal you know what Gilgal stands for? Calvary that's what Gilgal stands for that's where the reproach of Egypt is rolled away that's where we're crucified with Christ at Calvary you can't crucify yourself if we crucify ourselves, then the old monks of the medieval church history, they were right, that locked themselves up in convents. Martin Luther pretty near starved himself to death. Starved himself to the point almost of absolute death. They had to carry him out of his cell and pour liquid nourishment down his throat. He was so hungry after God and so, so determined to get the passions of his body under control, he pretty near killed himself, starving fasting, prolonged fast for days, before he found anything out, before he found God at all, beating himself, figuratively if not literally, and thousands and thousands literally took a scourge and whipped their backs till, it was, till they were cut open, trying to subdue the flesh. You don't crucify yourself that way. You don't crucify the flesh that way. You crucify yourself by a by a system and by a principle of dead reckoning. You put your hand on the cross and drive a nail through it, then how, how in the world are you going to get a hammer in the other hand that this hand's already nailed to the cross? How are you going to drive the nail through the other hand? You can't, you can't crucify yourself. No man on earth ever lived to crucify himself. Well, then how, how, do, how, how do we get crucified? They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with his affections and lust. Do you get your, the preacher to do it? Nobody else can crucify you. They'll spit in their face and curse them while the process is going, well, how do you get crucified? Reckoning. Reckon yourself to be dead. I am crucified with Christ when the spikes went through his hands. I reckoned by faith. My old carnal nature was there. And when he carried our humanity and all of its weakness and for all of our humanity and all the curse of Adam that followed in the wake of Adam's transgression on the human race, was concentrated in, in the cup that he drank when he died for us on Calvary. He carried our humanity to the cross. And in that marvelous, marvelous provision, we reckon that our humanity was crucified there with him. And that's the only way you can get crucified with Christ. And you rejoice in Jesus Christ. And you worship God in spirit and in truth. And you have no confidence in the flesh. That includes degrees of education and the size of your church and the size of your ball team and the size of your basketball team and the size of your football team and the, and the, and the wealth that you pour into the bricks and mortar in your new temple. Nothing in material media, nothing that's, that's mundane enters in to your merit of spiritual relationship to God. You're crucified with Christ. But I must hurry on. Lord, help my poor brain to keep straight so that I'll be able to get this out. 
They said, well, you lying Gentiles, you, you deceived me. And they said, we sure did. But you're not going to turn on us now. We know something about God. We, we know something about the way you Jews get along with God. And you made an oath to us in the name of your God that brought you out of Egypt. We were scared spitless out of, of you. We knew you were going to go over us like a steamroller goes over a caterpillar. And so we just played it smart. We went down and pulled the wool over your eyes and maybe it was... 55% cotton, I don't know, as we heard yesterday, but they pulled the wool over the Joshua's eyes, and, and, and Joshua signed a covenant with them, and some of Joshua's men said, uh, Joshua, let's up and at him. And Joshua said, put your sword up. Don't you know we, we signed an agreement with them in the sight of God? We can't break our word. We're some of the folks that I'd loan money to would... Uh, would uh, would regard their promissory notes with a little uh, seriousness instead of just plain plum ignoring them year after year. And I wasn't rich, but I could help OBI if I could get some of those bad notes from Pentecostal preachers paid back in. Pentecostal preachers! God knows I don't want to degrade the preachers in the, in the eyes of the congregation. But God wants us to let your yea be yea and your nay nay and better, better not make a vow if you're not going to keep it. But let's go on. And Joshua said, you're not going to kill him. And then Joshua went back to Gilgal feeling like a whipped dog. And then these other kings up at Gibeon, five of them, five big shot united, a, a, a quintet of devil-worshipping, heathen, ungodly. You know how they lived? They lived like they did in Sodom and Gomorrah and ten times worse. The whole, the whole land was so polluted with a rotten sore of impurity, of devil worship. Of, 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 you can't describe it in a decent congregation. Shouldn't be talked about in an indecent congregation. The, the, the general conditions in the land of Canaan. God said, all these things, the inhabitants of the land before you practice and live in. And that's why the land itself has spewed them out. And if you make alliances with them, you'll be doing the same thing and the land will spew you out. And the Israelites went smack against God eventually and the land spewed them out. And they went to Assyria and they went to Babylon and, and they've been scattered to the four winds of heaven ever since. And these five kings said, look, these Jews, these Israelites have come up out of Egypt, this mound of Moses, a couple million of them. And, 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 and they've already established a beachhead down near Jericho. Don't you think that the news didn't travel far and wide about what God did at Jericho? Rahab said, the fear of you has fallen on all the inhabitants of the land. And they were all trembling in their shoes, if they had shoes. They were scared half to death. And these kings said, look, and now these, these, these double-dealing, turncoat, traitorous Gibeonites have denied us and they've turned away from us and they've gone over there and sold themselves into bondage and slavery to the Israelites to save their miserable hides alive on the face of the earth. Joshua said, well, I can't kill you, but you're going to be a ewer of wood and a drawer of water to pay the bills for the sanctuary. 
The only lesson I get out of, uh, the only lesson I get out of that is if you can't kill the old man, make a slave out of him, kick him in the teeth, or make him chop wood and draw water for the for the convocation. Praise the Lord. And the first thing you know, they all ganged up at Gibeon against the Gibeonites. And these same fellows that came down and deceived Joshua came back again. Said, oh, Joshua, they're all ganged up on us and our former allies are going to kill us. And now we're your people. We're on your side. You signed the covenant. We belong to you. And you've got to come and defend us. And Joshua said, oh, yeah. You fooled me once, but you're not going to fool me again. You lying Gentiles, I wouldn't trust you as far as I can throw a bulb of the tail. Tell you what I'll do. I'll inquire of the Lord. And he called the, some of the other priests, and he went to the high priest and said, I'd like an interview with you at the time of the morning sacrifice. And he said, here's a pack of these lying Gibeonites. They've deceived me before, but Lord, I'm sorry. But now here's my offering, and here's my sacrifice, and here's my burnt offering, and here's my peace offering, and here's my trespass offering. I've, I've been a poor chump, and I've made the mistake, and I made this, I sinned, I, I presumed. But now, Lord, forgive me. I want you to please show me. I'm your chosen leader, and God, show me what way to go. Shall I pay any attention to this bunch? Shall I go up and deliver them? And God said, the priest said, wait a minute. And he looked at the room and him, and he said, yeah, God wants you to go. He said, come on, boys. He whistled through his teeth. I never learned how to do that. No, they didn't. I take it all back. He said, trumpeter, blow the trumpet. They went, what do, what do they call that? Not revelry. Anyway, they called him together to march, to war. And all his crack troops met together. And do you know what it says? Immediately they started to march from, get it, from Gilgal to Gibeon. Under the impulse and under the inspiration and under the energy, that's the word, under the energy of their own self-will, they dragged their weary feet previously from Gilgal to Gibeon and it took them three days. But now they had a prayer meeting and got a fresh revelation from God in the sanctuary, and under the impetus of that assurance in their soul, Joshua said, pick them up, boys. The African term in South Africa is pakamisa meow. It means pick them up and lay them down. Come on, double time. Come on, hop, two, three, four, hop, come on, hop, two, three. And those fellows marched 26 miles in 12 hours flat. I mean, they just had a jog all the way from Gilgal to Gibeon. And when you're dragging your feet and the meetings are dead and you can't make any progress and everything you do blows up in your face and, and, you, and, you, and you make a mistake there and you make a mistake there and you're, and you're not getting anywhere fast. In fact, you're going backwards. Now, I was holding a meeting once and, and I preached a week and a storm came up on the night of my offering and I got $30. The preacher said, don't feel bad. Next Wednesday, we'll take another offering. Wednesday night came, and a storm came down off of Pike's Peak, buried the town. My offering was $30. Sunday night came, he said, oh, we'll give you a good offering, Brother Trotter. You'll, you'll average out about $60. 
I needed 200 but he said, you'll average out about $60. Sunday night time? Yeah, you guessed it. Big blizzard blew down off of Pike's Peak and buried that town. And my offering was $30. Yes, sir. I said, brother, we're doing good. Hope she doesn't start to go back in reverse. We were on the treadmill, but we were holding our own. Is that the way you're getting through? Just barely holding your own. And you're barely holding your own. And you're barely... That's the way it is when you're walking in the energy of your own decisions and your own flesh and your own will. But when you're under a new anointing and you get into the sanctuary and you go back to Gilgal and you pray through and you get in touch with our high priest and he tells you what to do, my brother, you're supercharged with a new energy of the anointing of the Holy Ghost that you'll do in one day's time what you couldn't do in three days previous. And when you turn the whole thing over to the Holy Ghost and walk in divine order under a new inspiration and revelation of the Spirit of God, under a new anointing of the Holy Ghost, you'll do more in three weeks than you were able to do in seven years previously. Hallelujah. And they got up to, they got up to Gibeon and fell. They were so weary they could hardly stand up. Those fellas have been gone double quick, triple time, jaggedy, jig, jog, right up. Come on, pack a mason out. Come on, come on. Hey, hop, two, three, four, hop. Come on. Kept it up, jagging behind them all night long. And they got up to Gibeon in the morning and they fell on those kings who were marshalling their hosts to come down and wipe Israel off the map. And they defeated him with a great slaughter, and the slaughter was so great that Joshua said, Why, I can't, we, can't be, we can't begin to finish the job of mopping up all these hundreds of thousands. It wasn't no little sham battle in somebody's backyard. It was one of the greatest notable battles of all history. Did you ever realize that? That's what I read one time. Historians count the Battle of Beth Horon, that's what the name of the battle was, one of the most important battles of all world history. It changed the course of all world history. I can't go into that now. And, and, and they marched up and fell. And Joshua saw he didn't have time enough to get the job done. So his faith waxed strong. Stood out there in a little anthill. And he said, Son, stand thou still. Over Gibeon. Look it up, Brother Sanders. It's Chetson the bisection of the heavens. Stop there at High Meridian. Don't you go down. I need delayed sunlight. I need a continuation of sunlight in order to finish up the mopping up operation. And now the moon, the moon was over there in the valley of Agilon, gunshot pass in the hills of the western sky. And astronomers were able to turn back in their... Because the long day of Joshua places the sun over there in Gunshot Pass in the Valley of Agilon and places the, places the sun places the sun at the high meridian. And when the sun was at high meridian, the moon was over there setting in the western hills in a little declivity called the Valley of Agilon. God knows astronomy and God knows what he's doing. And this Bible is accurate to a gnat's eyebrow. No, I shouldn't use that kind of language. I should say this, this, this Bible is true. Let it go at that. That's enough. Praise the Lord forever. And then you know what happened? 
I find my text, Joshua 10, 15. And when the sun stood still and the moon, Joshua and all his people continued his men, continued the slaughter of the people, these enemy kings, the five kings, and they went and hid themselves in a cave. And they came and said, Joshua, we got them in a cave. And Joshua said, roll a stone over them. We've had enough victory right now. Well, what are you going to do? Aren't you going to go kill them? No. Where, where are you going? I'm going back to Gilgal. You're going back to Gilgal now? On, just on the morrow after the greatest triumph of all this tremendous victory, you're going back to Gilgal. I mean, the same as Eisenhower when we had Berlin all bat battled up and, uh, and Germany on her knees. Instead of staying there, it would be the same as Eisenhower saying in World War II, at the end of World War II with Germany, saying, well, I've decided to go home and go on a yacht trip up and down the Potomac. I don't think I'll stay over here and finish the job. I think I'll go home. Well, that a court-martialed him and sent him down in eternal disgrace in United States military history. You know what got me onto all this line? I was reading this. Joshua went back to Gilgal right at, the, right at the hour of his greatest triumph of the Battle of Beth Horon. There was never a day like that in Earth's history that God fought for Israel and the sun stood still and the moon stood still. And God fought for Israel and gave them that most triumphant, glorious victory. Joshua and his troops, he sounded the horn, sounded the trumpet, and he said, we're going back to Gilgal. And the whole business went back to Gilgal. And this commentator said, this is a mistake. Some copyist let his eye fall back on some previous verse, and he made a mistake and put this verse in here, and the verse doesn't belong there. And I said, the verse does belong there. And this little outline came out of the whole study. God don't make mistakes. And they went back to Gilgal. What for? I'll tell you why. And my message is through. I'll tell you why they went back to Gilgal right at the time of their greatest triumph. Gilgal is the place of crucifixion. I wrote it down. I couldn't quote this. Gilgal, which stands for the crucifixion of self, must be the center from whence the Christian goes forth to victory. Amen. You let that soak in a while till I wipe my eye out. Gilgal, which stands for the crucifixion of self, must be the center from which the Christian goes forth to victory. And it is the center, now here's the whole sermon this morning, to which, that center, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. Gilgal, the cross, is that center to which the Christian must return after the triumph. But he must in spirit stay there continuously. Why? Because the act of because the activities of the conflict and its triumphs 
tend to draw the heart away from God and to divide the heart's attention. And there's many a preacher that's left the ministry and he's gone down in moral defeat and he's gone down in sex immorality and he's gone down in other failures because right in the midst of a revival when the church was riding along on a crest of mighty movings of God he got careless and some devil came up behind him smelling of Chanel number no. five with high-heeled shoes and tapped him on the shoulder and fawned on him and he didn't have sense enough to retreat back to Gilgal and say, oh God, it's not me. It's you, Jesus, it's you. And he failed to keep his eyes on the high priest. He failed to pray through in the inner sanctuary. The glory failed. He didn't fail. He didn't get back under the glory in the temple. The court wasn't filled with God's praise. He started to appropriate some of the glory for himself. He started to appropriate some of the praise for himself. He failed to worship God in the Holy of Holies. And that devil tempted him. And that devil turned his, turned his attention aside for the the, 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 the activities of the conflict tend to draw our attention away from the center from which we went forth to battle and the center at which we must abide if we are going to triumph over the world, the flesh, and the devil. These things are not relating to foes that we fight on the outside. These foes are all within. Well, what did he do after he got down there to Gilgal? He prayed through, burned some incense, offered some more goats and cows and bullocks on the altar and worshiped God. Got his clothes saturated with the fragrance of the sanctuary. Prayed to God and worshiped the Lord and offered thank offerings and peace offerings. Well, it doesn't say that. No, but I got sense enough to know that. He didn't get down there and go fishing. He went back to Gilgal because that's where God sent him forth from. Amen. And then the, some of his young stalwarts, the Secretary of War, and some of his big major generals said, Joshua, those five kings are still up there. Aren't you going to handle them? He said, yeah, when I get through the holy, holiness convocation, I'll go back and fix them. So after a few more days, maybe a week later, I don't know how long it was, read it yourself. He said, all right, now let's go up and finish the job. And he went back to Gibeon, and he took his crack troops with him, and he said, before this cave, whatever, I forget the name of the thing, he said, roll away the stone. They took the stone away, and he said, bring those fellows out, and they snaked them out. Don't you think that those kings were a bunch, looked like a bunch of hippies? Those kings... You ought to see the temples that those fellows built. The ruins of the temples were still standing. And if God hadn't shook the earth to shake those temples apart, they'd still be standing, and they'd rival the greatest works of architecture that we have on the face of the earth today. That we're building in our modern lifetime. I mean, men are building in our lifetime. Tremendous works of beauty, Superior sculpturing, art, marvelous works of architecture. They weren't a bunch of ignoramuses. They were brilliant scientists, hundreds of them. 
And they were full of the devil and full of devil worship. And they glorified the flesh and worshiped the creature more than the creator God blessed forever. That's why Jude says we ought to hate the garments even spotted with the flesh. And they were going around with their great big plumes on their brass helmets, and they were going around with their clanking coats of mail, and their big white horses, and their big black horses, and their chariots of iron, and they were just brandishing their polished steel swords, and their great big ornate ornamented shields. I'll tell you, they were some warriors. And the flesh in itself can put on a mighty big show. But when the flesh gets in touch with our heavenly Joshua, when the flesh gets in touch with a preacher or a saint of God, she might be scrubbing over the washboard. I said that once in a Bible school, I think it was, and some girls came to me and said, what's a washboard? They didn't even know what a washboard was. All they knew was just threw the clothes in the washing machine, pushed the button, that's all they knew about washing clothes. But no matter what your station is, before that one who has waited on God at Gilgal down at the foot of the old rugged cross and acts and goes forth and ministers and works and worships and wars under the energy of the Holy Ghost and a fresh revelation from the Urim and Thummim and from the heart of our high priest, hallelujah, the flesh curdles, the flesh shrivels, the flesh shrinks. And there they were in those, in those caves. Those poor fellows hadn't had a bite to eat. Maybe a few snails, but I don't like snails. And you want a little snail keep you from going up in the rapture? Whoever that young man was, that was a terrific illustration. That was great. I'm going to use that one. The old swan in the store. Where are you going? I don't like snails anyway. Glory to, I don't even like centipedes. <laughs> and so, Joshua said, snake him out, boys. And some of Joshua's men went and got that fellow by the scruff of the neck and dragged him out. And he had not a shave or a haircut. And he hadn't been to his hairstylist. And he was a bedraggled mess. He'd been laying in there shivering to death. Maybe he was coughing his lungs up with pneumonia by that time. Joshua brought the whole five of them out. And I'll tell you, before the onslaught of the Holy Ghost, the flesh looks like a pretty sick duck. The flesh looks like a pretty sad spectacle. Are you able to hear me in the back? He said, put their neck over that log. Well, maybe he didn't say put it over the log. Said, stretch them out. And they stretched out on the ground. Scared, hungry, half dead. Joshua said to his man, look, come on, put your foot on his neck. And one of his captains came and put his foot on his neck, put, on his, put his foot on the neck of this king. And Joshua said, oh, harder, walk on it. He said, oh, but it'll hurt, it'll make his tongue stick out. He said, yeah, make his tonsils stick out. Put your foot on his neck. Now push on a little bit. Walk on it. Now walk on the next fellow's neck. Squeeze a little bit. Those fellows don't deserve any mercy. They, oh my, they were so guilty. God's no milksop. Joshua said, the rest of you fellows come up and you take a walk across their necks. 
And those, those Israelites walked on the necks of those heathen kings because Joshua said, I want you to get the thrill. I want you to get the feel. I want you to get the experience of knowing what it feels like to walk on the necks of your enemies. And God the Holy Ghost is here this morning, and our Joshua is here this morning, and those kings are defeated. Glory to God in the land forever, and God wants you by the Holy Ghost to get the thrill and to get the experience and to get the joyous victory, the feeling of joyous victory, of knowing that they're trampled under your feet and you're more than a conqueror in the name of Jesus. Against physical men, no! Against those devilish propensities within your own heart and mind that lead you out of God and into the, into the doldrums and into the cold outer darkness of flesh and the world and makes you miss the mind of God and renders you helpless and worthless in spiritual warfare. They went back to Gilgal. They went back to Gilgal. And every time God's people didn't go back to Gilgal, they failed. They fell on their face. Joshua did. And the only, the only place for recuperation is to go back to Gilgal. And you can, you can come to a holiness convocation. And you can hear the best preaching on the face of the earth. And that means this, this convocation down here, not myself, but these other preachers. There's no preaching on the face of the earth to exceed or excel in quality or in capability, the preaching that we've heard during this convocation. And you can sit there as dead and dry as King Tut's tomb and go out and fail and, and fall short of God's best unless you personally get back to Calvary. We've got to get back to Calvary. We've got to get back to the inner sanctuary. We've got to get back under the dripping of the blood. We've got to get through to God. Robert Brown was a man that I held in a very, very, very high esteem. He was pastor for something like 38 or 40 years, many years, 40 years, I think. What difference it make? All his life in New York City, Glad Tidings Tabernacle. And they were having a revival for months and months and months and months. Every meeting, people were saved. Every meeting, people got the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When Brother Brown was praying, Mrs. Brown was preparing sermons and going out to visit and taking care of church business. When Mrs. Brown, when, when, when he got off his knees, she got it. She went in the prayer chamber. And either one of them was on their face before God every waking hour, every waking hour. They just took time in turns off their knees to sleep. And God was pouring out his spirit and pouring out his spirit, and they were having their tremendous Pentecostal Move of the Spirit of God. No, not over a period of weeks, but months, cut several years. Brother Brown went down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, just this side of Pennsylvania, about 120 miles, 100, 100 miles away from New York City. Had a couple hours before the night meeting. I think it was the district council. Said, well, I got a few hours and I'm tired and weary. I'm going into this hotel. Put him up in a hotel room. I'm going in, lay down, try to get a couple hours rest before the night meeting. Went in, laid down on the bed, pulled his shoes off, still partially dressed, laid down on the bed and said, Oh, Jesus, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful, oh, God, you've been so good to glad tidings, name of their church. People getting saved, getting the baptism every meeting, every meeting, every meeting, people getting the baptism. Oh, God, you've been so good. And the Lord said, My boy, 
How long has it been since you have felt a new burning of the fire of God? How long has it been since you have let the Holy Ghost speak through you and you just didn't say something in tongues like a Paul parrot? Spirit of God says the same things through you 15 times. If you're of normal intelligence, you can learn to do that yourself. Yes. Brother Brown says, oh, Jesus, forgive me. Right in the temple, right in the midst, I've lost the touch. Oh, God. Oh, God, forgive me. Lord, here I am. There's nobody here but you and me. No one's here to see us. Lord, I'm going to lift my hands. I make a complete surrender. I make a deep commitment. Jesus, I want you. Robert Brown got back to Gilgal. He said, Lord, send it right down all over me, a fresh baptism. And he said, my fingers began to shake. And I said, Lord, that's what I want. I haven't felt that for months. People are getting the baptism all around him, but he hadn't felt it. Lord, shake me all over. And he said, God came down and filled me and shook me, cleared down to my feet, and I, I filled up, and I filled up, and I didn't have to remember something the Spirit had said and say it myself, but the Holy Ghost gushed forth in new languages, and I was so marvelously refilled. Ah, that's what I'm talking about. Getting back to Gilgal. Come, Holy Spirit, I need thee, sing it. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come in thy strength and thy power. Come in thine own gentle way. 